Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're joking. You're joking. Not another one. Oh, for God's sake, I can't, honestly, I can't stand this. There's too much politics going on at the moment. Why does she need to do it? Why does she need to do it? Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 57. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and like Paul Nuttall as he announced UKIP proposals for a burqa ban, I too think that people don't really integrate properly if you can't see their faces. So, I'd like to push for a ban on surgical masks, large Elton John sunglasses, moustaches, fake and otherwise, death masks, gas masks, eye masks, face masks, creepy squid masks, swine flu prevention masks, clowns, Mexican wrestlers, skiers, those hoodies that zip up over your face, you know the ones, scuba divers, motorcyclists, daft punk, dead mouse, seer, the Power Rangers, Batman, Man, and all those racist EDL wankers that Paul Nuttall is trying to appeal to who cover up their faces when taking part in fascist marches as a result of dog whistle politics like Paul Nuttall does. <sighs> Do you smell that? Yes, it's the nostalgic whiff of an election. Here we are, less than two years since the last general election, less than one year since the Brexit referendum, and we're already back with a brand spanking new general election happening just seven weeks from now, appearing just after a local election scouts the way ahead like a suicidal canary. Yet it's now clear that when Theresa May said in her Easter statement that the country was coming together, it turns out it would be by her hand, as announcing a snap general election last week, everyone, leave, remain, right or left, is now united across the UK in thinking, oh for fuck's sake, not again. Is it because with so many critics of the government's grammar school plans, May has realised it's easier to destroy the education system by ensuring schools have to be closed all year for endless elections? Do the Conservative government have secret investments in the company that make those tiny, tiny pencils that you vote with? Or is Theresa May just a die-hard fan of reverse treasure hunts, so she really likes putting crosses on boxes? No, it appears according to the Conservatives this vote is about Brexit because, you know, we've not had one of those votes about that before except for, you know, the one last year but apart from that, we haven't had one about that at all. And Theresa May says this general election is necessary to strengthen the government's position and create a stable government which, judging by the last year, means one that continues to be full of horseshit. And only a few days in, it's becoming more and more clear that the 2017 general election is like hair of the dog after a very boozy night out. 
you know it definitely feels too soon after the last intake of booze to do it all over again, but who's to say whether it'll actually make everything much, much better, or in fact, and much more likely, much, much worse, making the hangover even longer than the already hellishly never-ending ruinous wave that you've signed up to. According to polls and predictions, the Conservatives are heading for a landslide victory on June the 8th, so-called because once they're in, everything will be downhill till 2022. What that means is that so far, Theresa May hasn't really bothered to woo voters at all, refusing to do interviews, getting a helicopter to appearances and making speeches in closed locations like a toothpaste factory in her constituency of Maidenhead. I really hope she didn't choose that location to promote a Brexit that appeals to UKIP voters and so is extra whitening. So far, the Conservatives have pledged a cap on energy bills, a proposal that when suggested by sandwich-impaired former Labour leader Ed Miliband was dismissed by former most useless Prime Minister of the UK David Cameron as being a petty socialist campaign and a gimmick. I applaud energy caps though and I really hope that the Conservatives continue to take Ed Miliband's then-dismissed ideas, releasing the 2017 Conservative manifesto on a giant fuck-off headstone. Labour's policies include four extra bank holidays for the UK on the days of the patron saints, which plays to religious and nationalist voters as well as uh, banks. Probably more bank holidays for banks. It doesn't take into account that all those days are in spring, though, the time of the year that's already full of bank holidays, thus rendering the UK pretty much closed until June, when everyone starts taking their annual leave for the summer. I'm sure productivity will soar. Many, though, are still very concerned about what they should do if they can't stand the Conservatives, but they also can't stand Labour leader, and what would happen if Ernest Hemingway wrote a novel about an allotment owner that had to fight a giant courgette, Jeremy Corbyn. It is a tough choice. I mean, do you cave in and vote for someone that you might feel is a bit incompetent, has caused divides in their own party, has an unsure stance on Brexit and could very well lead Britain to ruin? Or do you think, fuck it, there's no way I'm voting Tory and go for Labour anyway? Ah, do you see what I did there? Do you? Feeling like they've had all their hard work plagiarised by the Conservatives, UKIP have decided that the only way is far right, with Paul Nuttall announcing that one of their manifesto election promises will be a burqa ban to help integration. That coming from a man who really thinks that the best way to fit in is to pretend that all his mates died in a horrific tragedy even though they didn't. A square peg trying to fit in a round hole would give much better integration advice, mate. Stop it. Meanwhile, across the channel, the first round of France's presidential elections means the contest is now between former investment banker Emmanuel Macron and far-right hate stirrer Marine Le Pen. Or as I like to say, it's cash vs fash. Hate vs interest rates. Centrist vs racist. Both are technically political outsiders, so it's now up to France to decide if they want self-proclaimed candidate of the people, Le Pen, as president, or the man who's trying to appeal to the left and the right, Macron, who says he is for optimism and hope. Macron has more political support and is currently in the lead, but I'm worried that with ISIS claiming responsibility for an attacker who shot a police officer in the Champs-Élysées last week, I just hope that the 2017 French response to a call for optimism and hope isn't just meh. Hello you. How are you coping? Are you alright? I realise that I am so sick of this upcoming snap election already that when I heard Theresa May wasn't doing TV debates, I didn't think, as I probably should, that is pathetic, she's afraid of having her policies taken down by other leaders. No, instead I thought, oh, well, maybe if they empty chair her, and then, you know, empty chair all the other leaders too, and then empty chair the audience and the chairperson, and then turn the cameras off, we'll finally get a lovely quiet hour and a half where I can sit back and watch a blank screen feeling like I'm finally enjoying something on the television. But actually, whether it's a good or bad exciting, this snap election is at least exciting. Even if it meant they had to release a mini-episode last week, mere hours after releasing episode 56. Because I swear the Prime Minister does it on purpose just to derail me. For God's sake, Theresa, seriously! 
And what I'd like to do in these next few weeks, in the run-up to June the 8th, is to get lots and lots of input from you, the listener. It's just you. There's only one of you. Um, as to what you would like me to focus on on this show. Um, my guests in this week's episode, which we'll get to in a bit, and next week's episode aren't uh, general election-based because no-one told me an election would be happening. For God's sake, Theresa, stop it. But after that, I've hopefully got someone to explain how polls work and why they can go horribly wrong or very right. I've hopefully got someone from Full Fact as well. Um, But what sort of people do you want to hear from? What sort of stuff do you want to hear about uh, with this upcoming election? Uh, Most other podcasts, radio and TV, are probably going to be speaking to candidates, so I am aiming to talk to voices that you might not hear. And if you have any specific aspects of it all that you'd like me to look at or interview someone about, then please, please, please do drop me a line at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. As considering, you know, we only had one of these in 2015, I don't entirely know what's useful for everyone uh, to talk about election-wise, apart from me just swearing even more than I did in last week's mini-episode or giving you top tips of things that you can use to claw your own hair out with effectively. A big thank you to Eleanor for the Kofi donation last week and to Julia for the Patreon donation. And if any of you fancy donating to this show, which you probably do, come on, I know you do. I know you I know you might not admit that you fancy it, but maybe just tell your mate to tell me that you fancy it. Um, if you fancy donating to the show, please we head to uh, Kofi, that's ko-fi.com forward slash bro, and you can do a one-off donation there, or patreon.com forward slash bro for a regular donation thingy. Um, and this week's extra on the Patreon donation is... Uh, the Brenda from Bristol mix that I put at the top of the show so for just one dollar a month you can have gems like that that you'll only ever listen to once and never ever again oh and uh, Partly Political Broadcast got a whole two reviews on iTunes last week as well two I know people you have really upped your game plan Um, so if you want to help beat that record then please head to the iTunes page for this show and please give the show a five star rating and I don't mean compare us to the 80s pop group thank you some uh, live things admin before we crack on um, firstly if any of you came to the fun shows I did this past weekend uh, at the brilliant Take Back Control youth event in Shoreditch or the very very fun Quantum Leopard versus the Tories last Saturday um, or my preview at the Good Ship on Sunday thank you if you came to any of those they were all brilliant fun um, if you're going to the ever secret but not actually secret McInleth Comedy Festival in Deepest Wales next weekend I am going to be there doing another Edinburgh preview at 12.30pm on Saturday April the 29th and I'm fairly sure there will be tickets on the door if you come last minute. There's also probably still tickets online and really, well, everywhere except, you know, the sold-out board, so please do come along. Um, all my other previews and shows are also on my own website, tnndweb.co.uk, if you can spell that, um, and it's on the gigs page there, so just check that out if you live in places other than the couple that I've mentioned. Uh, I might be coming near you soon. Um, and lastly, a bit of an experiment, but I've also teamed up with uh, twice podcast Tatton Spiller from Simple Politics, and we are going to do a show at the Udderbelly South Bank, the giant upside-down purple cow that resides there uh, before heading up to Edinburgh in August. Um, we're going to do a show there on June the 4th for children and families called What's This General Election Thing All About? Um, and it's going to be a... I think you have to say it in that voice when it's that sort of title, don't you? You have to have to feign confusion. Um, and it's going to be a non-partisan, kid-friendly mix of comedy, clear explanations about politics, and uh, we're going to have some guests as well. The, the whole point of it is just to help smaller people understand what all this shit is about Uh, and I won't be saying words like shit or what this shit is about because it's for kids Um, but if you have kids and you are struggling to explain to them why all this is happening yet again um, please do head to underbellyfestival.com and search for what's this general election thing all about uh, and grab your tickets there it should be a lot of fun 
I'm also trying to put together a live partly political type night on June the 8th, election night, somewhere in central London with the aim that we can all drink and cry together uh, or hopefully drink and laugh together and then cry together afterwards. Um, but more news on this as it happens, uh, a.k.a. I find a reply to some emails that some people sent me. Um, hopefully I'll tell you about that next week. Right, on this week's episode, episode 57, I interviewed Dr Tendai Bloom on the issue of stateless people because, uh, A, it's very, very interesting, B, I had no idea an election was happening, for God's sake, Teresa. Uh, so hopefully you will find it very interesting and you'll find it a little bit of a break from the nonsense that the entire rest of this episode is going to be about. Well, nearly all of it, because, of course, before some of that, there is also this. <laughs> Unlike the UK, where we like to have an election, then year later a referendum, then another year an election, the French political system prefers to follow an election pattern very similar to their meal structures, in that, in a way, there's lots of them and it sort of feels overindulgent, but also highly satisfying and afterwards everyone needs a bit of a rest. France has two elections in quick succession for the position of president, followed by a short break, then two elections within a few weeks for the National Assembly shortly afterwards, and then no one bothers voting on anything for a few years, allowing it all to digest until the European elections, which are either a cheese board or a dessert, depending on whether you think the EU is very mature or total crepes. Sunday saw the hors d'oeuvres of the elections as Fionn, Mélenchon and Hamon were all knocked out of the presidential race, leaving just Macron and Le Pen, which doesn't rhyme, and no, that isn't the only reason it's not the most ideal two to have on the cards. The main concern is that Le Pen is the daughter of a Holocaust-denying fascist, and while it's unfair to judge someone by what their parents were like, Le Pen has mostly followed in her father's goose steps, running her presidential campaign on tackling the supposedly uncontrollable situation of foreigners in France. You know, France. Yet another country that spent years invading and colonising other countries with force, but still has certain citizens that want to keep France for themselves. Like one of those arseholes who goes around pinching a few of everyone else's freaks, but then hogs all their own. Le Pen got 22% of the vote, which is scary, but it's also exactly what was predicted in the final polls. So yeah, it's always concerning that someone on the far right has that much support, and yes, very concerning that so many young people disillusioned due to a lacking job market felt like she was their only hope. But it does mean there was no unexpected rise in shy Front National voters, which bodes pretty well for Macron, who's 26 points ahead in the runoff polls, and looks set to have the support of not only those who voted for him in round one, but also very likely most of those who supported Fion too, because you know, a centrist is closer to their values than someone who's very polarising. Because, you know, no one wants polar eyes. It's cold and it means you have to restrict your vision to some very narrow viewpoints. Round two is on May the 7th and hopefully next week I should have a guest uh, who can go into a little bit more detail on what it all means and selfishly what a Macron or Le Presidency might mean for the UK's Brexit. Because ultimately, that's what's most important. If you feel like the election-based news isn't giving you enough room to breathe, that's because, well, it literally isn't. The government are seeking to delay their plan to tackle air pollution until after the general election. Because, let's face it, no one expected a breath of fresh air from them, did they? In the sort of statement you'd only expect from a giant lizard person trying to masquerade as a human, Secretary of State for Environment and other stuff, Andrea Leadsom, told the Commons that air quality is vital for humans, and then confirmed the measures to combat air pollution would be delayed. It is concerning that when running for Conservative leadership last year, Andrea Leadsom banged on and on about being a mother, but seems to only have the most basic grasp of what human beings need. Air quality, apparently. I bet her kids can't wait till she realises food and water are pretty useful as well. But by delaying this plan, the government may face legal action as the High Court had given them until 4pm today to deliver a draft of measures after an environmentalist group, Client Earth, took a case against them. 
so it could be court issues and a rise in pollution for the beginning of the Conservatives' election campaign. Still, I guess that fits in with a manifesto of their other toxic policies. Am I right? Boom! Mic drop! Except I wouldn't do that. It would make the podcast very unlistenable. Also, on the fun, who really cares about this planet anyway tip, the Green Investment Bank was sold last week to the Australian bank Macquarie, which is the bidder that everyone said, please don't sell the investment bank to them, please. So that is great. The GIB, yeah, you know me, has investments in 85 environmentally friendly projects from a biomass plant in Wales and one in Belfast that turns waste into energy and therefore is probably entirely fuelled by repeats of Prime Minister's questions. Am I right? It also manages the world's first offshore wind fund, which is probably, again, entirely fuelled by repeats of Prime Minister's... OK, I'll, I'll stop now. And the whole Green Investment Bank was set up with £1.5 billion of taxpayers' dosh, with the aim that the UK would benefit not only environmentally, but also from the assets. Macquarie have bought the bank from £1.7 million, so there's a uh, 0.2 million increase there, which is vaguely useful, and it's thought that the government will keep £140 million of assets until they can be sold for the best amount. But Macquarie have a record of asset stripping, where they just sell off various bits of the things they buy for the best profit, completely ignoring the point of it in the first place. And you can see exactly why I guess the government have preferred them, as that's what they tended to do with our public services too. Macquarie acquired Thames Water in 2013 and since then Thames Water has just paid out large dividends to shareholders, run down its capital and not really paid any taxes. Brilliant. I'm sure they'll be perfect for the Green Investment Bank. After all, what's more energy saving than not even expending time or efforts helping pay your contribution towards the state? So, poor air and no green investments. You'd think that after the marches for science all over the world this past weekend that the government would want to follow the will of the people. Or is it just that all this time we've been getting it absolutely wrong as to what type of green investments this government meant? If I was to mention statelessness, you'd probably think I was going on about some sort of electronica band whose album cover likely looks like something that might happen if a robot was instructed to paint like a child. But statelessness is actually when someone becomes a citizen of nowhere finding themselves, for a number of possible reasons, having absolutely no nationality at all. While some of you are probably thinking that this either sounds brilliant on a Jason Bourne no-one-knows-who-you-are level, or perhaps that even having no nationality has the absolute bonus that you don't have to vote in a general election yet a fucking again. But actually, being stateless is really not all that peachy. Instead, if you're a citizen of nowhere, that means you aren't entitled to a number of things such as healthcare, national insurance, benefits or any of the things that you need to have records and be a citizen for. If you consider how hard it is getting all those things under this government in the UK while you're a citizen here and you have records, imagine what it must be like for those without. Statelessness has been a largely hidden crisis, as how on earth do you help people that you don't have a record for or really know how many there are of? It becomes less of a solvable situation and more of a philosophical issue. Which is why this week I spoke to Dr Tendai Bloom, a political and legal theorist currently specialising in the area of people who are stateless. She explained to me what statelessness means, what steps are happening to deal with it, and why we need to focus on the question of what citizenship is, and more importantly, what non-citizenship means. Despite reading up on this before our chat, I still found it very hard to get my head around what statelessness means, partly because it covers such a broad range of people in such a broad range of situations, and partly because, you know, I'm an idiot. So a few times I asked questions that made me worried we were just going round in circles in order for me to grasp it all. However, Tendai is brilliant and made everything as clear as possible about a global political issue that you'll realise is anything but clear. Here's Tendai. Tendai. 
firstly, most important question, especially, I think, for a lot of the listeners, uh, what exactly does being stateless mean? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess the best thing is to go back to the legal definition, which comes from the 1954 convention relating to the status of stateless persons. And it means that a person who is not considered as a national by any state and the operation of its law. What it means is someone who's not a citizen anywhere on earth. That's, that's what the legal definition is. So they, they don't exist. Is it sort of, you know, in terms of data, in terms of records, is it someone that doesn't exist? Is that how it works? I mean, yeah. So in some instances, people can find themselves not legally existing. But then again, um, everyone by law has a legal identity before the law. So everyone exists. But in the operation of law, it can mean that some people just don't seem to exist. And what would lead someone to becoming stateless? Um, is it is it mainly children that become stateless? Um, yeah, that's interesting. So I guess the most obvious way you become stateless is if somehow you didn't get a citizenship at birth. So if you weren't registered at birth or if somehow you slip between the kind of legal definitions. But actually, adults can become stateless in lots of ways, like like, for example, in, in Sudan, when you, you ended up with the country splitting. So then a new definition of citizenship has to be brought into action in the new state that's created. And of course, not everyone is going to register in time or fall within the right jurisdictions to get that citizenship. Or, or the other, like, most obvious way is when a state takes away your citizenship. Like in, in Dominican Republic at the moment is probably one of the most famous cases where lots of people found their citizenship removed and they became stateless. And, and why, just uh, for, for listeners and for myself, actually, why did people have their citizenship removed? Was that uh, uh, for legal reasons or, you know, for uh, being charged with criminal activity? I've, he I've heard of statelessness occurring because of that. Why, why did it happen in Dominican Republic? So, I mean, in that case, um, people who were identified as being of Haitian heritage um, ha were having their citizenship removed under the suggestion that they had never acquired it legally. So it, it was um, uh, an ethnicised, racialized removal of citizenship. Right. OK, so a sort of mass occurrence of creating statelessness, I suppose. Um, that sounds terrifying. Um, and, and actually, that sort of leads me on to a, perhaps a, the next question. How many people are currently stateless across the globe right now and how big a problem is it you know is it, it i mean i i think i'm fairly certain that it's uh an issue that not a lot of people are aware of yeah well that's an interesting question we don't know how many stateless people there are but i mean the estimates we have come from unhcr um and come from the institute for statelessness and inclusion so we have like conservative estimates of between 10 and 15 million people are stateless i mean that's that's kind of a bigger constituency than around 144 states and dependent territories in the world. So it's a huge population if you were to see them all together. But to be honest, I think in a way it's more concerning just that we have the con condition of statelessness and that uh, people find themselves in this kind of limbo-like situation. Um, there's a really interesting book, um, which was by Kelly Staples on re-theorizing statelessness, and she suggests that the fact of statelessness just causes a significant problem for the way we think about our global systems um, and our 
yeah, but the global infrastructure and its legitimacy. Right, because I suppose it calls into question our ideas of citizenship and what it means to be to have a national identity. Yeah, and also it calls into question our, our ideas about rights and about humanity and what, what people are owed and how our global infrastructures are set up to ensure that everyone has basic human rights and has access to has access to them. I mean, is it an issue? Because you said that we don't quite know how many people are stateless. Does the fact that these people are deemed as stateless and therefore aren't on record in, in many areas, does that mean that we can't find out who they are? Does that, you know, is it, is it sort of a, a self-serving problem? Um, because they're stateless, we can't get to them to, to give aid. I mean, I guess on, on, one, on the one hand, yes. Um, but on the, on the other hand, I mean, we know that this is an issue. So, like, we know that there are people who, because they don't have a status or don't have a citizenship, are unable to access certain rights. So we know that if you were to remove some of those barriers, those people, whoever they are, would be able to get access. Or we know certain mechanisms that are causing problems. So you can address those. But I guess what we don't know is, for example, the depth of need in certain areas. We don't know, for example what the health needs would be in certain populations if we're not able to understand who is living there and who are the needs, who has who has unaddressed needs. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Does that, I mean, I'm guessing, does that make it quite hard to make this issue recognised by governments and world leaders and world organisations? Um, or is this something that they're aware of? Because I, I assume, that, you know, with a lot of things I'm thinking of, like the UK government, in order to get them to <laughs> t- tackle things, even then they, they don't necessarily, but, you know, we need to sort of bring figures and say it's happening this much. If you're coming to them saying we don't know the depth of this and we don't exactly know how many there are, does that make it harder for world powers to be able to, you know, to be able to tackle it? Yeah, I mean, of course, when we don't have numbers, it's hard to be able to say how we've improved. I mean, if we don't know X number of people are suffering a particular uh, deprivation of need, and then we do something, and then a few years down the line, we can't find out if we've done anything to improve matters if we don't have those numbers. And often that's an important mechanism by which to uh, effect change. So, yeah, I see. I mean, I think you've put your finger on something important there but but statelessness is recognized as being an issue in the international community and we have the statelessness conventions and we have um discourse around them so it's it's just about continuing to move forward i think but the idea is if, if the government or if governments don't have figures and things do they have to care about it you know because to them they're numbers that people won't see you know there's less of a an awareness about it happening does that create more of a problem with it? Yeah, I mean, you're, I think you're right. And when we talk about, I mean, one thing that's been people have, in the international community are talking about a lot at the moment is the sustainable development agenda and the need to leave no one behind. But one concern when you're looking at an agenda like that is that if um, some people are just not being counted within the agenda, they will be left behind in an agenda that's like directed specifically at trying to... Um, trying to address the needs of people that we know about the bit that's i i find uh most upsetting about all of this i mean and and from when um i got in touch with you and you sent me lots of very useful links uh useful links about um what statelessness is what really concerns me is how can we begin to help 
and aid these people if we don't entirely know the depth of what it is that they need and they're not necessarily recognized by countries you know and, and, and i it feels like it feels a bit like um uh you know a sort of catch 22 situation they're not recognized and that's the problem but because they're not recognized we can't help them become recognized yeah i, I mean yes on the one hand it, it can look like that but at the same time we do know like two main things we know one we know that there are people that don't have access to citizenship and that something needs to be done to make sure that everyone has access to a citizenship that makes sense for them. And two, we know that there are people who, because they don't have citizenship, are unable to access certain basic rights um, and social benefits. And so we need to put things in place so that those barriers cease to be a problem. So I, I think we know, I mean, it's quite clear what the overarching responses could be. And then that's going to have localized uh, implications. But I, I don't. I, I think it can be easy to get hung up on the problem of lack of data when actually we know what statelessness means broadly, and we know that there are localized issues associated with it. But overall, people need access to a citizenship, and people also need access to rights when they don't have a citizenship. Yeah, it, it does become quite... I mean, well, actually, you make it sound very clear, but I suppose it, it, it feels like it's a, maybe a more complicated situation than it is. And what, what, what's, how are we covered by international law? You know, what, what basic rights have, have people got uh, without being a citizen of anywhere? I mean, they have, the full gamut of human rights, in theory, are applicable to everyone in virtue of being a human. So... I mean, international law does give rights to all persons irrespective of citizenship. But when it comes down to it, you need to be able to claim those rights against a particular state. We have um, the two statelessness conventions, which have been been signed by quite a few states. But I mean, there's a lot a lot of scope for more more action in that regard. But um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, I mean, stateless persons do have, in theory, access to the full gamut of rights. But the, but the problem is, um, is always identifying the state that has the obligation towards the person in order to deliver on rights. Sure, right, so it's who will accept responsibility for those people. Yeah, and quite often these are populations... I mean, in some cases it's an administrative failing, but in some cases it's a population who a state doesn't want to have within its territory or doesn't want to acknowledge um, that them as citizens. So, that, I mean, it becomes a very political issue and it's not only really about not knowing how many people are there, but more finding a way forward when there are diplomatic and political difficulties in recognising people as citizens. And what would, say, if a country was to take in a stateless person, would they gain the same rights as someone seeking asylum or would it be considered the same as uh, immigration what what kind of uh, how how do we take someone in what uh, process happens yeah that, that's that's an interesting thought so let's just let me just set out so statelessness can happen in situ so it can happen you don't have to move you can just be where you are and you become stateless and statelessness can also happen as a result of movement so that that's one thing to mention but then so that means that someone could be moving and then find themselves in a situation of statelessness, and then you might want to talk about them as immigrant. But um, to answer your 
question directly, someone who is stateless may well, in fact, be an asylum seeker. So someone like, so Lindsay Kingston, for example, she's written a fair bit looking at how statelessness is both a cause of discrimination and persecution and also causes it. So a person may find themselves discriminated against or persecuted as a result of having no citizenship. So it makes it quite likely that someone who is stateless may try to move to find a safer situation for themselves and their families and therefore may well be applying for asylum. And then they should be treated as an asylum seeker, as you say. Yeah. And I guess is to uh, seek asylum, you have to be uh, invisible danger if you return home. I, I, I can't remember the correct wording. That's quite rubbish. But, you know, it has to be a perceived threat for you to leave and seek asylum elsewhere. And if you are stateless, does that remove the idea that where you're coming from, because you're not coming from a, a state as such, <laughs> or you don't have a state that you belong to? Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. So, I mean... I mean, it means that that you're the state where you're normally resident. But you have, um, I mean, look at the case of the Rohingya in Myanmar right now, where um, the reports coming out are really quite horrendous of, um, well, some people have referred to it as ethnic cleansing of um, that population who are a long-term stateless population in the country. I mean, if they, if an individual is able to leave that context I think they would have quite a clear claim that were they to be returned, they would be at risk of severe persecution and danger to their life. Um, in the same way as someone who has a citizenship and is fleeing war uh, in an, in another context, if that makes sense. The um, example you just gave in Myanmar, if they're in a country that seeks to not recognise them, is it harder for other institutions to tackle or aid them if it falls within another country's... Uh, laws, I suppose, to deem them stateless. I mean, the thing about statelessness is, I mean, some countries have created a statelessness determination procedure. And so they would follow. I mean, I think it's a complicated. Sure. Uh, because of the fact that I think it's conflating statelessness issues with the issues relating to asylum. So a person could seek protection elsewhere as an asylum seeker, and they should be treated in that way. Uh, as you said, that you can be stateless uh, in movement or you can be stateless in situ. And if you are stateless in situ because of the situation around you, is that harder for uh, other organisations to get aid to them because they've become stateless due to their surrounding situation? Yeah, I mean, just to be careful, I mean, I, so not everyone who's stateless is impoverished or suffering extremes of violence. I mean, you have large stateless populations who... I think I think it's, like, extremely complicated. So, you, for example, you'd have... Um, it's very complicated because you have, for example, um, like the Tibetan population living in India, and they are... They include people who have tertiary education, who are living very well, but at the same time, they're unable to own their own property and not allowed to enter the professions. So I'm not sure they need aid exactly, but they do need access to citizenship and they do need access to owning land and property and the professions without needing a citizenship. So like in some places, like in Myanmar, it's a case of people need the violence to stop. In other places, like for like Palestinians living in some places like Jordan and Lebanon, or 
uh, those Tibetans living in India, it's a different kind of a question. It's people needs, I mean, they need access to to better conditions, but it's not a question of them needing aid in the same way. That's why it's like an extremely complex and different, dis, dis, disparate kind of issue. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <laughs> we'll be back with Tendai in a minute, but first... General election 2017 is my least favorite general. I much prefer general hospital or general knowledge. General election 2017. Okay, so we all know we'll all be heading to the polling stations on June the 8th to put a tiny cross in a box, which you only do, you know, when voting or burying a dead hamster. We know it's a snap election, mainly because May wants the same sort of result as the last one. Snap! And we know that MPs overwhelmingly voted for it in the Commons at 522 votes to 13, because those 13 largely are either knackered, think May is taking the piss, or both of those things, or in the case of Clive Lewis, both of those things, and he's meant to be getting married on May the 6th, and this election has meant he's had to cancel his honeymoon. There is a possible Labour campaign angle right there, surely. Vote Labour because Theresa May is literally ruining things between happy couples, and we have proof. And we know that Parliament will be dissolved on May the 3rd, which is going to take a pretty big glass of water. Am I right? I, I don't know what's wrong with me today. I'm very sorry. And then it's local elections on the 4th of May and various mayoral elections, and it was going to be the Manchester Gorton by-election, but that's been cancelled due to the general election announcement, which is the first time a by-election has been cancelled like that since 1924, which coincidentally is exactly the year Theresa May wants to take things back to. But we know all those things... There are also several things that you might not know. And let's start with a tiny, boring bit of admin. 
How did Theresa May call a snap election? In 2011, the Fixed Parliaments Act received royal assent. <laughs> I said royal ass. And that introduced fixed terms to elections, with the provisions of the Act stating that there must be parliamentary elections every five years. Before that, Parliament could only be dissolved when the reigning monarch said so, which usually meant the Prime Minister had to say so first, because it's really not like the Queen can be bothered to watch Question Time when she has special servants to clean her bum. I mean, probably. I don't actually know that she does that. No, you Google it. No, you Google it. I'm a bit scared. So this Fixed Parliaments Act means that our next term was meant to be in 2020, which we were all a bit hopeful about, as you know, 2020 is the year of perfect vision. In 2016, a petition to call a general election, as Davy Cameron had been involved in the Panama Papers scandal, was responded to by the government saying, no government can call an early general election anymore anyway due to the Fixed Parliament Act. But if that's true, then why are we having one now? Well, here's the rub. The Act states that if the House of Commons with two-thirds of its total membership decides on the need for an early general election, then there shall be one. So the government weren't 100% lying when they said no government can call an early general election anymore, but they were also a little bit lying, as Theresa May called for one knowing full well her party would back her and then everyone else would have to back her as well, otherwise they'd look like scaredy frady cats and no one wants cats in Parliament as they just fall asleep and clean themselves, which would be gross, and it's ultimately how the House of Lords works anyway and that's their thing. So that's how we're having a general election. But probably the more important question is... Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? Which is the question I've asked with nearly all politics ever and whenever I see a packet of salad dressing flavoured crisps. Why do I want my unhealthy food to taste of healthy food? You do crisp flavoured salad and I'm totally in, mate. Not the other way around, dickhead. So the why, oh, why, oh, why, according to Prime Minister Theresa May in her election announcement speech is because of division in Westminster since Brexit that has been impeding the government's plans even though we still don't really think that they have any so how can anyone get in the way of something that isn't there? Theresa May pointed to Labour threatening to vote against the deal the government reached with the EU, the Lib Dems saying they want to stop Brexit entirely, the SNP calling for an independence referendum and unelected House of Lords members voting against various steps of the Article 50 bill triggering. So, by having an election now, May could potentially get an overall majority and then bulldoze Brexit through however chaotically she likes without any old nags getting in their way with their stupidly valid concerns for the future of Britain and fighting them using the democratic system. <laughs> what idiots? What kind of idiots do that? What kind of, what kind of morons want the best for the British people? <laughs> but it's a good time for May to call this election for her, as the Conservatives are currently on nearly 50% on a lot of polls, which they haven't had since the days of Thatcher. Yeah, really. Maggie was on a real winner with that whole destroy communities, shut down entire industries, have a massive whacking poll tax thing. I put it down to British people loving a good old moan about stuff. And if someone was in in the Prime Minister's seat that actually made them happy, I mean, what on earth would we talk about? Can't be having that. And so with any luck, the welfare system will be dismantled entirely and we can have a right or complain about it while having a cuppa and dying of some ancient disease. So yeah, May is well up ahead in the polls, making right now seem like a great time to knock the other parties back several notches. Especially now UKIP are no longer a threat, but the left-wing vote is divided between Labour, Lib Dems and Greens. But there are other factors too. Firstly, a general election in 2020 would have come not long after we officially Brexit in March 2019. And now having till 2022 to cement the post-Brexit society they want, as well as inflict boundary changes in 2018, that'll really, really hurt Labour. The Conservatives could find 2022 an even easier victory. And here we were thinking the Great Repeal Bill was a big old power grab, eh? I mean, this election could make that look like a toddler reaching for a AAA battery in comparison. 
Oh, and just a little thing, probably nothing to it at all, really. You know, I, mean, I don't even know why I'm mentioning it. It's probably absolutely nothing. Um, but do you remember, do you remember all the allegations of electoral fraud committed, possibly, or possibly committed, by members of the Conservative Party in the 2015 election? Do you remember that? Well, I'm sure this is nothing. I'm sure it's absolutely nothing. But the Crown Prosecution Service has said that they are considering charges against 30 individuals in the Conservative Party. And these charges, if the individuals are found guilty, could have caused by-elections to happen if the general election hadn't been called, which bypasses it entirely. Though Theresa May has said she'll stand by all of those running again in the seats concerned, there is every chance the CPS will bring in charges during the electoral campaign, which surely isn't a good campaign tactic. I mean, what are the Conservatives going to have as a slogan? You know the phrase, cheaters never win? Well, help us, the Conservatives, prove that wrong. Is it definitely going to be a Conservative win? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I feel like predicting anything other than the death of predictions since 2015 is pointless nowadays. But while polls have been wrong in the general election Brexit and Trump over the last couple of years, a lot of the reasons they were wrong seem to be to do with unrepresentative samples. Which is also what I call it when someone puts a clip up of me on YouTube uh, doing stand-up comedy that they filmed on their camera phone while I was dying on my arse. No, I'm only kidding. And no one ever films my comedy sets. They're too busy leaving. So the polling companies say that they have made adjustments for the unrepresentative samples since 2015. And while you might think, well, but these adjustments didn't work for the Brexit vote, this is partly because they had absolutely no record of how people had voted previously in the Brexit vote. I mean, in the 2015 election, they could look back at the election in 2010, but for the Brexit vote the last eu referendum was in 1975 and was about joining not leaving so not very helpful for comparisons oh and with trump the polls weren't actually that wrong because they predicted that he wouldn't win by people voting and he didn't win the popular vote but he did win the electoral vote which is because america loves stupid outdated systems that don't make sense or seem to really demonstrate democracy say i in the uk with a 2016 year old parliament system where the government just called an election because it'll be easy for them to win If you look back at our UK 2015 election polls, they largely predicted higher gains for Labour due to too much data from Labour voting areas. Then Labour, as we all remember so painfully the next day, jumping out of her echo chambers for just a tiny minute, Labour got considerably less than predicted. This time, however, Labour are already 23 points behind. So if they then get less than predicted, well, I'll just let you sit with that for a minute. Yeah. I mean, no wonder they're pledging more bank holidays. I mean, for them to stand a chance in this election, they don't just need the big guns, they need policies that they can feed spinach to and Popeye the shit out of this. But as well as this being good for the Conservatives because they're so far ahead of Labour, they've also seen a rise in polls in Scotland that could lead to the SNP losing 10 seats and then probably losing their chances of a second referendum as well. Yeah, they're doing well in Scotland, even though Theresa May told Nicola Sturgeon now is not the time about her independence referendum, and then, right in her face, launched a new general election for the UK. How dare she? I can't work out if certain Scots secretly love being patronised by the English, or they're just genuinely impressed with how shitty May has been and think, ah, the boys on that. So, June the 9th could see a very blue Britain indeed, which would neatly match the mood once the government get going. But who can say for sure? They may not get as big a win, Uh, they may get less of a majority they want and be in the same position as before, making this whole thing quite pointless. Or the Crown Prosecution Service could charge several candidates, making things tricky. Or Jeremy Corbyn could get an endorsement from The Rock, and really, no one hates The Rock. Or Tim Farron could promise unicorn frappuccinos to everyone and win everyone over. Or Theresa May could fall down a well. 
Who really knows? I mean, seven weeks isn't that long, but it is enough time for anything to happen, including me starting a Kickstarter to build more wells in Westminster and Maidenhead. I'm on the case, people. Don't worry, I'm on the case. What are all the party stances? Now, we won't have manifestos for a few weeks, so here is a quick rundown. The Conservatives mainly want to do Brexit how they want to do Brexit, i.e. as they go along with the worst team possible. Policy-wise, we know so far they have promised an energy price cap because it turns out that the chaos that was predicted had everyone voted for Ed Miliband in 2015 is now exactly the sort of policy substance the Conservatives want for themselves. Considering they're going for the same message this time with Corbyn, Farron and Sturgeon about all the chaos that it could cause if we vote for them and let them win, I almost wonder if the 2022 Conservatives will actually end up pledging a Scottish independence referendum and a tax rise for top earners. Other than that, at the time of writing this, not much on the Conservative manifesto, though we do know that they're going to go back on their cuts to foreign aid, which is suggested as a way of quelling them losing support to the Lib Dems in the southeast because they're all about the foreign aid, and it looks like they're going to ditch their pledge to not raise national insurance, VAT or income tax because, I mean, they're being that cocky right now. I mean, the boys on that. You know, if you think you're that far ahead in the polls then why not take away your pledge to not raise national insurance, VAT or income tax? I would say that I'm never against a tax raise personally, but a VAT raise on top of already rising costs would really hurt a lot of low and middle income earners. And a self-employed national insurance raise is what Chancellor Philip Hammond had to U-turn on after a ton of white van drivers got angry and, I don't know, played ACDC even more loudly than usual while beeping their horns, probably. So if Hammond U-turns on that policy yet again, does that just mean that the Conservatives are going round and round in circles? Theresa May is refusing to do any TV debates because, you know, they're tough when you can't actually be caught on camera. Ha! Vampire joke. But it does make you wonder if she knows that she hasn't got much that will hold up to scrutiny apart from just ploughing on with Brexit. On the day May announced the election, both the number 10 official spokesperson and Downing Street's communications director resigned, which feels a lot like rats and a sinking ship. But May has balanced that out by hiring a massive rat in the shape of Dylan Sharp in the Department of Work and Pensions. Sharp is a former spokesperson for Printed Vom The Sun, where he spent some time responding to anti-Page 3 campaigners by sending them pictures of topless women. At least when people complain to the DWP about a lack of a working benefit system, he'll struggle to find pictures of Universal Credit actually helping one to retort with. And as for the other parties, well, again, I'm going to look at this a lot more when the manifestos are out, but at the moment, Labour is backing Brexit, ruling out a second referendum, but is aiming for a Brexit that works for the many, not for the few. Few as in, you know, not many, not as in few, which is the sort of Brexit I want. You know, one where when it happens, I go, phew, that wasn't as bad as I thought, rather than, you know, just the low wailing noise that lasts for about a year that I'm quite likely to make. But all of Labour's policies are aimed directly at low and middle earners, uh, with many I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago you might remember, including a £10 minimum wage, uh, free school meals for primary school children, triple lot pension, and then adding to all this, repealing the trade union legislation introduced last year, and four new bank holidays. Oh, and a promise to raise the top rate of tax for people earning over £70,000, which caused a lot of people that have money to say that that wasn't rich and that was unfair, and a lot of people without money, like myself, to say that it definitely was and it definitely is rich. I mean, to be fair, the threshold on who's earning too much and who's rich should really be judged on who doesn't gasp if a pint comes to more than £3.50. But while Corbs's first speech of the election campaign was confident and drew praise from some very unlikely critics, it went downhill only days later on the Marshow, where he was a bit cagey about if Trident would be renewed if Labour were in power, and then he ruled out the notion of using nuclear weapons as a first strike option. Now, I've got gripes about Jezza, but him not wanting to nuke stuff is not one of them. 
Conservative Defence Secretary Michael Fallon retaliated by saying on Radio 4 that he would definitely fire nukes as a first strike if necessary, and then he went on to complain about the dangerous chaos of Jeremy Corbyn. You just said you'd blow up everything before trying anything else and damage the environment in a way that takes over 50 years to heal and killing millions of people, and you call Corbyn dangerous? This is the same government that only weeks ago was threatening war with Spain over Gibraltar. So far, some actual super weak points in Labour's campaign do include Corbyn's stance against the rigged system, which is all a little bit Trump-like for me. Then again, Trump did win despite the polls, so maybe Jezza should promise a wall as well. And Labour's party political broadcast last week showed a teacher telling her overcrowded classroom about how the government were damaging schools and education, seemingly ignoring the fact that it's illegal for a teacher to unfairly influence pupils under the Education Act. Great work, everyone. Also, the classroom it was filmed in looked really nice and full of modern stuff. So (laughs) going against their point entirely. It's also important to know that really to enact any of the things in Labour's manifesto, Labour have to win a majority at the election, which is hella unlikely, which always makes me wonder, you know, why the opposition don't just promise really implausible stuff. Free ice cream for everyone. Done. Everyone can have a free house and a free car. Done. And a pet unicorn for all you guys. Vote for us. Sorted. I mean, what's the worst that can happen if you do that? They get voted in and they have to U-turn on it. Yeah, to be fair, I can't imagine anyone doing that ever. Looks to camera, knowing wink. As for the others, the Lib Dems are on a hugely anti-Brexit tip and are the only sort of main party doing that and promising a second referendum because you know what everyone really wants after yet another vote is yet another vote. The Lib Dems have also said they won't make any coalition deals which makes you wonder why they're running at all and what it is that they're on because I would really, really like some too. The Greens are very anti-Brexit too, but are playing a slightly nicer game than the Lib Dems, as they've already opted out of running in Ealing Central, therefore helping current MP Labour candidate Rupert Hook gain more votes, which is very nice of them. Rupert is also keen on environmental issues and an ardent Remainer, so you know it totally makes sense as they share a lot of policies. And oh, isn't it nice when politics is actually about being helpful to each other? Oh, and UKIP are using more dog whistle politics than a party that only represents shepherds, so basically, fuck them. Will tactical voting work? What about marginal seats? And that is a good question. Uh, There are 10 really, really marginal seats in the UK. Uh, Ready, Gower, Derby North, City of Chester, Croydon Central, Ealing Central and Acton, Berwickshire, Roxburgh and Selkirk, East Mon, I think I pronounced that right, in Anglesey, Vale of Cluid, Brentford and Isleworth and Berry North. And I'm pretty sure at least four of those are made up. In all of those, the MP that won in 2015 won by a margin of 0.1 to 0.8%, which is tighter than the entire Department of Work and Pensions. Overall, there's 110 marginal seats, and these are the ones that need to be watched. So is tactical voting between the parties you like the way to, well, anyone except the Conservatives? In the last election, the Conservatives got 11.3 million votes and won 330 seats. Labour got 9.3 million votes, but if you add that to Lib Dem, Green and SNP uh, as a collection, then they'd all have beaten the Conservatives by 3 million votes, which sounds absolutely brilliant if they hadn't all spent the entire campaign slagging each other off instead. But the problem is, these extra votes don't necessarily add up to extra seats, as it's all area dependent, and the tactical voting would have to be very, very exact and would require everyone getting on and coordinating it together, which we absolutely know will never fucking happen. 
Going on 2015 elections, for example, if all Lib Dem voters and Labour voters had worked together, ha, then, you know, we'd be in a much nicer world. Sorry, I mean, it'd have given 17 extra seats to Labour and 15 to the Lib Dems. So Labour would have still been 50 seats behind the Conservatives at the end, but yeah, at least the Lib Dems would need two camper vans to drive their party around for this election, which they'd have liked. But ultimately, it would have used more petrol, and so actually the entire planet is better off that it didn't happen. The current projections are that the Conservatives will win 392 seats this time around, with Labour winning, oh, about 170, which is painful. This time round, the SNP votes aren't going to make much difference either, as they already hold 58 out of 59 possible seats, so there's not much more that they'll necessarily gain. And while the Conservatives had had a rise in poll, and there's an expectation that if the SNP do lose some seats, it might not be to the Conservatives, it might just have been unbalanced by the Conservatives. So either everyone has to unite pretty big, and somehow persuade everyone who isn't a Tory voter, or could potentially not be one, to all vote for one other party, then maybe, just maybe, tactical voting would work. I mean, I'll tell you what, I'll do a tweet, and I'm sure we can just sort that out pretty quickly, right guys? Who should we go for? Monster Raving Looney Party, yeah? Who's in? Tony Blair rose from his grave this week to tell voters that if they have an anti-Brexit Conservative running in their area, they should vote for them rather than Labour to fight against Brexit. Yeah, that'll definitely work, Tony. I mean, I'm sure if May had an even bigger majority than before, the entire party wouldn't just fall into line like Conservatives are able to do like a pack of elitist ants. Honestly, I don't understand the Labour MPs who think the best thing for Labour is to lose the election so horrendously that they can go back to being the Labour Party that then lost the 2015 election instead. It's like cutting off your arm because they think that they'll actually get a new arm that is the arm that they really want, ignoring the fact that they're completely bleeding to death. Ultimately, just make sure that you're registered to vote, vote for who you want to, look up your local candidate, see who suits what you want, help my Kickstarter for more wells in areas Theresa May travels to, and we'll all wake up on June the 9th and cry together until we realise that at least I'll have a reason to keep this podcast going, or, well, you know, probably until 2022, if we aren't nuked to death after Michael Fallon's erection accidentally hits a red button while watching Trump and Kim Jong-un kill each other. And now, back to Tendai. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's it's a, a category. Statelessness covers such a a vast area of you know a, a degree of uh, things. It can, you can you can be in a number of situations and have that classing as stateless. Um, but it comes back to what you were mentioning earlier about what we see as citizenship um, and how important that is. And I mean, do you think the sort of citizenship in general is a kind of should it be an outdated concept now? We live in a very globalized world. Um, why do we still need you know, why are we still so hung up on the idea of citizenship and nationality? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, citizenship still is the way we tend to organise our political lives. And I think it's important to people in, in that respect. So I don't think we'd want to scrap it entirely. Um, I think um, you're right to met to at the end of your question there, you distinguish between citizenship and nationality. And I think that's an important step to make. Um, someone like, like Catherine Tonkis, for example, she's written a fair bit looking at how the conflation of citizenship with nationality is a major, like a major problem in uh, finding a more just way to organise politics. So that might be one aspect of thinking very carefully about what we mean by citizenship and really what is nationality and should it be part of the same thing. But the the other part of what you asked um, was about re-understanding citizenship. And 
I think that there's been a lot of work lately trying to re-interrogate citizenship and the kind of burdens it puts on others. And some Philip Cole has said really done really interesting work asking, really, is the problem stateless persons? Is the problem uh, non-citizens and migrants, or is the problem citizens and citizenship and the people who are sedentary and the kind of rights framework they create for themselves and the burdens that places on those who are excluded from it? And I think really thinking carefully about these issues is going to be necessary if we're going to move into a into a situation where you don't have these kinds of deprivations associated with statelessness, for example. Yeah. Sure. I mean, that that's very fascinating. I mean, for looking at it from a, a very closer time point of view here in the UK, you know, we've uh, Brexit very much brought to the front of what a citizen is and some people uh, who wanted to remain very much felt like citizens of the EU and others felt like citizens of the UK or even uh, more selectively England um, and I, I suppose what you're saying there is like in a way being a British citizen has certain connotations that other people feel that or, or some people feel they need to protect um, and is that what you mean the idea of that sort of other people coming into that uh, that then affects them um, I think I was meaning yeah, I, th- I think I'm meaning more thinking about what what are we protecting when we protect citizenship and citizenry and the needs of citizens? Um, and what does that mean for those who are not protected within that framework? What what burdens does that framework of citizenship place on place on others? Sure. And, and uh, yeah, and, and I guess as well in that coming back to the earlier thing of the differences between citizenship and nationality in a way uh here it seems to be more a problem of nationality than citizenship i think at the moment um or at least identity national identity um and and do you think that that's then become but do you think issues like brexit and like trump in america and you know both of which play very much on nationality but also i suppose citizenship do you think that that's made issue of statelessness harder um, do you think it's made it harder for people to define or, I suppose, be accepted as citizens in places where they're not? I mean, I mean, so long as you have the assumption of citizenship and the assumption of status as being necessary for access to certain rights, then you're going to have the problem of what happens when you're unable to prove access to that closed group. And I, I suppose... Uh, any kind of movement towards increased protection of of that assumption of exclusion is going to be problematic for those who are thereby excluded. Um, yeah, and when that is moving along the lines of nationality, of na- nationality, uh, that that becomes problematic. Those topics directly aren't creating problems relating to statelessness, but. They're part of a wider issue in which the prioritisation of citizens alongside the exclusion of people from access to that citizenship is is kind of generating difficulties for certain individuals. So, like, if you look in countries like the UK, where uh, the removal of citizenship has been made possible, including in situations where it might create statelessness, that shows... Um, a move towards, how can I say it? It's a um, a loss of the sanctity of a citizenship for everyone. It's uh, a move further towards uh, assumptions of exclusion and um, protecting access to those citizenship rights, rather than seeing them as 
as a human right, is that, that everyone has a right to citizenship and everyone has a right to use that citizenship to uh, live out their life in the way they want to. Um, so using citizenship more as a, as a tool of, um, of coercion, perhaps, than uh, seeing it as part of a rights framework. So it's, it's you know, it, it's uh, a tactic towards, I guess, removing human rights to an extent, um, if you're denying people their right to citizenship. Or it's a, um, part of a, I guess, because you mentioned um, Brexit and Trump and other discourses that are happening uh, for example, in Europe, European countries, um, I think those are part of something bigger, which one component of which is the possibility to remove citizenship from individuals, the possibility to allow people to become stateless, and the notion that that somehow becomes acceptable within that within that developing framework. So, just yeah, as, as you sort of say there, like it does feel like there's a growing move towards that happening especially in the western world and and in that sense what are the ways to tackle statelessness and i mean are we looking towards a world where it's going to be statelessness is going to be increased there's going to be more and more people finding themselves stateless i mean i don't know i hope not i mean it does sometimes look like that's the way we're going but i guess i would argue that we need to really understand not only citizenship, but what we mean by non-citizenship and understand whether really citizenship is the only way an individual can relate with a state or if there's another way and another kind of source of political activity and political rights. So I, I would wonder whether, I mean, on the one hand, everyone needs access to a citizenship and a citizenship that's appropriate for them. But on the other hand, we really need to wonder whether citizenship is the only way we we can understand the way in which people function politically and to look at ways um, to understand the political entity of stateless persons, of people acting as non-citizens more broadly um, as a way to frame their claims against states, for example. So, so we need uh, we need citizenship to understand what having not having citizenship you know, as a sort of basis for understanding people's situations. I mean, maybe we need to understand also non-citizenship on its own. So maybe we also need to find ways in which it, there doesn't always need to be a deference to citizenship in order to find a political entity of an individual. Like maybe we need to be finding new ways of thinking uh, in order to in order to find a way to deal with changing circumstances. Sure. So is that, uh, I mean, and that sounds like a, I'm very interested in constantly in new ways of thinking, new ways to tackle issues like this, but how are, for example, uh, the Institute on Statelessness and, and areas, like, sort of groups like this that are dealing with it, how are they dealing with it now? How are they helping people in stateless situations now? Yeah, that's good. So you mentioned the Institute for Statelessness and Inclusion. There's also various... Um, like civil society movements around the world, quite a few regional entities. In Europe, you have the European Network on Statelessness, and, and they are doing work to try and understand what is the situation for stateless persons right now. Like what they And they tend to do some annual themes. So recently there was work looking at, particularly at children, um, childhood statelessness, and there's been work looking at detention of stateless persons. And... Definitely, if you want to know more about what the situation is right now, I would look to their blogs and their publications to understand. But also, 
they've been working with stateless populations with legal support and with um, find, trying to find uh, resolutions to their situations. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting work being done on a practical level right now. Right. OK. And, and then I'm guessing a lot of the work also is, as, as you mentioned, trying to work out the way to think around this issue. Yeah. So the, then I think probably we do need to have some more th- hard thinking about what what this issue means for the way um, the way our, our societies are set up and how and how to address it. Yeah. Today, you've got your own book coming out uh, fairly soon and know you've contributed to another book as well um your own book being non-citizenism and uh, the book you contributed to is understanding statelessness and so what's in in your book what's are you, are you focused on the ideology of status statelessness or non-citizenism in that it in fact proposes what i was just mentioning so it's um it suggests that um maybe a major contributor to some of the difficulties that we experience today, particularly in those states built on kind of liberal norms, has been the lack of um, a concept of non-citizenship that isn't deferential to citizenship. So up until now, it's been quite hard to talk about the claims a non-citizen as a non-citizen has against a state that has power over his or her life. So in that book, it argues that there is, in fact, a political movement of non-citizenism and suggests ways in which it, it can develop. Yes. Yeah. No, no. It's, it's, I'm finding this so uh, fascinating because it's, as I said, I think it is a whole area that people aren't particularly aware of because, as you said, it's, you know, we're still working out what non-citizenship means. And, and I was going to say, apart from yourself uh, and, and the books that you contributed to, um, and you mentioned um, the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, what, where else can people find out about this? Uh, where else should they look at? Is there anybody in particular they think you think they should follow or read up about um, in order to actually understand uh, the problem of statelessness? Yeah, well, I mentioned the Institute and also the European Network on Statelessness. You know, a book that's really interesting, it's a novel. I mean, it's an autobiographical uh, novel that's kind of by Stefan Zweig. It's a classic text on statelessness. But also, I think when when I first read that book, it's called The World of Yesterday. When I, when I first read that book, I really was made to think in a different way what statelessness would mean to me. Because he describes how he he never really thought about statelessness as being a problem. He saw it as being kind of romantic, like not being beholden to any state. And then suddenly he found himself with his citizenship removed, begging for papers. And I I think the way he describes in that work, um, the move from what he calls a citizen in good standing to someone who has no location in the world as he saw it, I think for me that made, that made a big impression about what statelessness means. And you can find contemporary um, presentations and testimonies of that also. If you look through um, the site of the Institute for Stateless and Inclusion, they have some links to videos and they have some first-person accounts of what statelessness has actually meant for individuals. And I reckon that's, if you've never heard about this topic before, is one of the best ways to start, is to really think, what would it mean for me? If I found myself without any citizenship, how would I move forward? And those accounts can help you to think through those issues and then move on to reading some of the kind of 
practical accounts about what's going on. Some other authors that are good to read would be, for example, Brad Blitz has done a lot of interesting work. I mentioned Lindsay Kingston. Her work is um, quite critical and interesting. Uh, the website of UNHCR is really useful with a lot of um, helpful information. Um, and they bring out regular reports, as does the Institute for Statelessness and Inclusion, on the situation for stateless persons. So I think that those are some really good sources to go to, first of all, and hopefully you'll find some other links from them. Big thanks to Tendai for speaking with me. Uh, for someone who looks at those stuck with no records or national identity, Tendai isn't on social media herself. But if you type her name into Google, you'll find a number of great articles by her, especially on statelessness.eu and institutesi.org, as we mentioned in the chat. Tendai's book, Non-Citizenism, non-citizenism uh, is very hard to pronounce and is also out on Routledge soon as well as uh, Understanding Statelessness which is a book she contributed to and you can order that from the Routledge website and you get 20% off if you put in the code FLR40 Next week, I should hopefully be speaking to a France 24 journalist on the French presidential elections. Then after that, we're in full general election 2017 interview swing. So if you have anyone you'd like me to interview for that, and I'm still thinking maybe not politicians, but rather different aspects of it all if I can, then do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro group on Facebook, or partly political broadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, you could just whisper it into a southerly wind and I'll keep my ears to the breeze. Unless I've got my headphones on, which is very likely, so maybe just email, yeah? easier so as we've got seven weeks to the election i thought that would give me at least a show per party to ask you what their preferred slogans should be for their election campaigns uh, so to kick all that off the very first one with seven weeks to go uh, that lot who are already in charge the conservatives I asked you what their campaign slogan for the 2017 general election should be and you'll find a lot of the answers had a reoccurring theme at Daniel underscore Woodrow said, same time next year. Oh, please, please no. Please, please no. Um, at Budgie said, are you thinking what we're thinking? Warning, Investigatory Powers Act 2016 will be used to confirm. At Millie the Hunt uh, said, just checking it's okay to screw you over for the next five years as well. At Sarah Gale Brand, uh, she's given two, vote conservative and get what you deserve. And total bastard, vote conservative. At JCell89 uh, said, vote conservative and get what you can pay for. At Benson Mike, uh, conservatives 2017, would you all please know your place? Uh, Rob Skeen says, conservatives because fuck you. Um, I'm genuinely, as I'm going through these, wondering they might well use this, considering that they're just getting rid of their pledge to not raise tax. They could easily have some of these with the uh, poll margins as they are. Um, Matt Hoss has said, the Conservatives, throwing you under the bus, then charging you for the healthcare since 2010. Um, Matt Kinson, Conservatives 2017, pledging to make I, Daniel Blake, look like a comedy by 2020. Uh, and then Matt sent another one, so says, uh, more than maximum rage for less than minimum wage. At 94, Michael C. says, uh, from those wonderful people who gave you junior doctor's contracts. I'd love that if they had to give a list of credits. I think that would be amazing. From those great people that gave you the popular poll tax. <laughs> that would be, I think that would really change a lot of opinions. At Fluff Logic says, we want it all, we want it all, we want it all, and we want it now. Uh, Paul Jenkins says conservatives because Brexit means Brexit and waffles means waffles. Lots of things mean lots of things. Look, just do as you're told. And at Real Stuart White says you hate us, we hate us, all in it together. 
I mean, I sometimes pretend to myself that this podcast gets listeners across a few steps in the political spectrum, but from that, I feel like all of you that listen to this are pretty certain about your feelings for Theresa May. Well, thank goodness for that, eh? I mean, we should be fine come June the 9th. Why is there such a loud echo in here? Next week, I'll be asking for Labour Party election campaign slogans, so keep your eyes on the Twitter and Facebook groups for that. OK, so a mini farewell and welcome to those departing the world of politics on June the 8th and those that may be joining it. Firstly, this lot are leaving their MP duties in order to spend less time ruining people's families. Former Chancellor George Osborne, he is stepping down as he'd forgotten he even had a seat being far too busy with his other five jobs. Hilariously, the Evening Standard broke the news that Osborne was stepping down, but Osborne, the editor of the fucking paper, gave them the news past the print deadline because he's that much of a tit. Fingers crossed that Osborne ruins that shit rag in the same way he ruined the economy. My concern, though, is that if Georgie thinks he's now responsible for creating all the news for the Evening Standard, then what on earth is he going to do in order to make front-page headlines in the future? How far will he go? Also out is former Secretary of State and Local Communities Eric Pickles. I really hope his more regular irritating presence at home will lead the Pickles to join his expensive Troubled Families initiative, especially as it's very easy to attribute his localism act to a large proportion of problems in society, which is what he did with low-income families. Thirteen Labour MPs are stepping down this time, including Gisela Stewart, Michael Doer, uh, Alan Johnson, who's going on to spend more time with pastel shirts, Tom Blenkinsop, David Anderson and Andy Burnham, who's going to be running for Mayor of Manchester instead, hopefully helping him escape the Westminster bubble, which I suspect he tries to actually evade like a scene from The Prisoner on every single one of his Parliament visits. Former only UKIP MP Douglas Carswell is stepping down, saying he thinks he'll be the first and last UKIP MP, thus proving he wasn't as against minorities as we all thought. Nigel Farage isn't running again after having failed to get elected seven times. He says he won't do it this time, as it'd be too easy, too easy to take part in this election, too easy to win, apparently. Other things that Nigel Farage has found too easy and so has refused to do include safely travelling in a plane, staying married to his wife and not being the world's biggest arsehole every single day of his life. Attempting to come back to the fold because now Bananarama have, really, what's stopping anyone else trying, uh, is Vince Cable because he's tired of fighting the Smurfs. Also, Lib Dem MP Jo Swinson is going to be running again in her Scottish seat in East Dunbartonshire because, really, really, what are the Lib Dems on? And really, can I have some? Also, there are rumours that Zach Goldsmith will be running for his seat in Richmond Park again because, <laughs> I mean, at least there's that, right? At least we can get popcorn and watch that. At least that will be funny. The Women's Equality Party leader Sophie Walker is running against mega-sexist Tory MP Philip Davis, the one who filibustered new laws tackling violence against women because apparently men suffer violence too. That was his defence. Anyway, I really hope Sophie Walker proves his point by massively kicking his ass. Writer, cook and defeater of Katie Hopkins, Jack Munro, is standing as an independent in her area of Southend and she really knows how to cook up a storm with very limited resources, so hopefully that will be good. And lastly, a man dressed as a fish finger is aiming to run against Liberal Democrat leader Tim Farron in his seat to put him in his place. That was their joke. That's obviously obviously not my joke. I mean, come on, guys. You know that's not mine, right? Much better quality. Mine are much better quality. You know that, right? You know that, right? Yeah. Well, to be fair, uh, the fish finger man trying to raise money is very similar to Tim Farron. In the, in the 2015 election, the Lib Dems got battered too. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is my one. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Fair enough. 
And that is all for this week's episode of Partly Political Broadcast. Do let me know what you'd like to hear about for the election. I will be doing many more in-depth looks at manifestos when they're out, but what else do you want to know? Uh, give me a shout, even if it's just to let me know that you have a particularly good or odd or awful candidate in your area. And obviously, you can contact me on all the places I bang on about every episode at Bro on Twitter, the Bro group on Facebook, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, or, you know, just keep typing random 11-digit numbers into your phone and calling them. You'll get to me eventually. Please donate, if you can, to the Parpol Bro Patreon page. It really does help. Or a one-off donation to ko-fi.com forward slash Bro if that is easier. And please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or your favourite gaming magazine and see if people try to play this podcast and win it. Who's the end-level boss? I bet it's Theresa May. This will be back next week with a far more in-depth look at the French elections and there'll be more general election stuff and more noises from my face like this one. And maybe this one. As well as a special appearance from a completely silent guest throughout the entire show. Maybe. Or maybe not. But how will you ever know? Bye! This week's show is brought to you by the number seven, as in weeks till the general election and coincidentally the amount of deadly sins. And was also brought to you by the letters Y and O repeated after each other ad infinitum or now at least until 2022. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.